This is CliffCentral.com. At some point in 2017, everybody in the world had become a cryptocurrency expert. The reality is that a lot of people were just buying, selling, or getting involved, or pretending to get involved because they'd heard the cool kids were. Who are those cool kids? Well, in this series called Decrypto, we're going to try and demystify the world of cryptocurrencies for you, explain a little bit around tokens, blockchain, and some of the more convoluted concepts, and hopefully by the end of it, you'll be one of the cool kids too. The Decrypto series is sponsored by Luno, Africa's first cryptocurrency platform. Let's cover some of the basics. Cryptocurrency is digital money that is passed from person to person online. Real names aren't used for accounts. Each user is given codes instead. This is where we get the crypto part of the cryptocurrency definition. Crypto is Latin for hidden, so cryptocurrency translates as hidden money. In the cryptocurrency world, there are also no banks. Everyone is in charge of their own money. Plus, it's the same in every country. That's why we call it decentralized. In the beginning was Simon Dingle. Well, he was the first person to talk to me about cryptocurrencies. It was long before it became the vogue thing to discuss at bries and dinners and everywhere, practically. Simon is, according to his own biography, Building Things. He uh, has a weekly technology show. He speaks about events on blockchain and cryptocurrencies, design, business trends, innovation. He was part of the team that built 227, the Curve, Smart Card, Luno, and is the author of a great book called In Math We Trust. There has been so much bullshit dinner conversation <laughs> in every household from people who are what you consider low LSM, rural, and otherwise perhaps not interested in the new internet economy. They're talking about it. People at the high end who are philosophizing about their billions they've invested in cryptocurrencies. It seems to be the hot topic. That and CrossFit, and we won't talk about CrossFit. <laughs> Where has this come from? I mean, how, how long ago did you see this as becoming a thing? I suppose I first saw it becoming a thing in 2011. I'd heard about Bitcoin in 2010 from my friend Justin Spratt. And... Um, I sort of looked into it, but um, didn't really get it, I suppose. And in 2011, I, I used to write columns for Finweek magazine. And the editor back then, Colleen Nordea, um, she suggested that we should do something on Bitcoin. And I convinced that it should actually be the cover. So it was. Um, and there was a cover in June that year, I think it was, um, where we called Bitcoin virtually the strongest currency in the world. Hmm. Um, and 2011 was an interesting year. Bitcoin first hit the $1 uh, mark in value that year. And later climbed up to $8. And so everybody was sort of looking at this weird internet money that nerds had conceived and, and wondering how on earth it could be worth eight times what a single dollar is. And then interesting things happened after that because it climbed up to $17. And then we had the famous Mt. Gox hack where the biggest exchange in the world for Bitcoin back then was hacked and the price fell to a few cents. And so the obituaries came out. Forbes famously ran a piece where they said, Bitcoin's over. Let's kind of deconstruct this experiment now and look at what happened here. And everybody said it was dead. And I was more bullish than ever. Watching the span between 2012 and where we are today has been fascinating. Firstly, with the backdrop of having watched Bitcoin 
die and Forbes and CNN and everybody declared dead six years ago. Sort of like those same culprits declared that Trump would never win the election exactly. or that Brexit would never happen. Yes, but I mean it's been declared dead about 147 times since then. In fact, uh, uh, there's a guy I know who runs uh, the Bitcoin obituary website and every time a, a big news uh, site says that Bitcoin is dead, he records it there and it's happened hundreds of times. And, and so yeah, so 2011 is where the penny dropped and it hasn't stopped spinning since then. Now it dropped for you because you didn't just necessarily see a way of gambling here, yeah. which a lot of people still do, and that's why they get cross if they bought in, you know, November last year, and now they're looking at it going, oh, it's half the value it was. <laughs> this is a waste of time. What you saw was the value of the underlying technology. Absolutely. I compiled the um, Bitcoin core software on my laptop back then. And back back then, you could still mine Bitcoin on your laptop. You you wouldn't sure. mine a significant amount of it, but it was doable. Now, that's just a complete and utter waste of time. But I started playing with the software. And what intrigued me was um, what's referred to as, as solving the Byzantine generals problem in computer science, which is that um, we've only ever had uh, digital abundance. So if I copy a picture of my cat for you, there are now two copies. And then if you go and paste it to Facebook, Book, other people can grab it and you know suddenly, know there, suddenly there are a million copies of your cat exactly. and that's that's what ruined the music industry for a lot of people ruined it and then subsequently saved it perhaps and i think yes. there's an interesting caveat there because you know you had characters like steve jobs who came along and they looked at what had happened in technology and they'd interpreted it in terms of anthropology so steve jobs looked or apple i suppose we give too much credit to individuals but apple looked at you know everybody downloading music for free from napster and they said, hang on, you know, people are not criminal. That's not what's going on here. They've just found a better way to get their music, and that's how they want it now. They created the iTunes store, and they started selling MP3s digitally at a reasonable price. And the piracy problem all but evaporated from the world of music because convenient beats free. And so in the Bitcoin world, um, you know, there, there are various analogies, but we we really kind of straying from the fact that this whole digital abundance thing was solved by us coming up with a way of the, you only having a store of digital value in one place in one time. Um, but I think the other, the other component of that discussion is also a valuable one in that we're still at the stage where we're deciphering what this means for humanity and packaging it in a way that's sellable because we're not there yet. So why are people who don't buy into it, so worried about it when they're perfectly happy to receive their salary in digital form because effectively that's what's happening. Your salary is paid across yeah. in numbers well, from one computer to another, but, but they're unhappy for their total asset value or for an investment, let's say, mm. to be described in the same terms. I think because we we don't survive well in isolation and and we work within societal structures and we've been educated that rands and dollars are real money and that other things aren't and that only governments can issue money um, and we have this trust in the government and each other. But you're dead right. Your bank balance um, in rand or dollars, it exists digitally. There's There's no physical manifestation of that money anywhere in the world. Um, yes, we have banknotes, but that's uh, you know, that's just a uh, well. Even that, I, part I, of the, I promise to pay the bearer. It's not sure. as if the note itself has the value. Yeah, I mean, uh, you just have to look at global debt, and it tells you the entire story. We now have yeah. two hundred and fifty trillion dollars of debt, and there's only ninety five trillion literal dollars in the world <laughs> so, <laughs> of so, value. So, who, so who's paying for stuff, right? Exactly, and and I think that's that's what I love about this discussion. Is, you know, we're all monkeys on a rock hurtling through space to uncertain doom, or to certain doom, maybe uncertain. But nobody really knows what's going on. 
And history is the story of people pretending to know what's going on, convincing everybody else. <laughs> and that's where our governments come from. Our borders, our military apparatus, our, they just all prop up a story that somebody made up and has, has managed to convince a group of people about. But I think we're reaching a point now in human history, and you can correct me if you disagree, where governments aren't things that we trust anymore, where people don't trust banks anymore, where people don't trust all those age-old institutions that we thought were so important, religion. The media. The media. Fake, fake news. news. <laughs> people don't trust anybody anymore, and I think we're living – we're going through a period of great uncertainty, and uh, this moment in history is just so fascinating to me from that perspective. But, you know, against that backdrop, you've got something like Bitcoin that's also forcing fundamental questions about value and um, and how we transact with each other. And and also getting normal people to start discussing things that they'd never thought about before, like fractional reserve banking. What does that mean? Well, it means that the bank doesn't have to actually have all the money that it's storing in inverted commas. of gold underneath, yeah. <laughs> it means it only has to keep a fraction of it to satisfy withdrawals on any given day. And when a bank issues a loan, they don't necessarily have the money they're lending you. They're creating it out of thin air, essentially. And yes, you know, we have a central banking system where the government ends, acts as a lender of, of, of last resort and will bail the banks out if anything goes wrong, theoretically, because of course we've seen that go pear shaped as well. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so it's just been fascinating to me, you know, watching 2017 and the hype and hyperbole around cryptocurrency and, Everybody, as you said, talking about it on the beach and at the braai and getting annoyed by that that one expert um, who pops up at every braai and every dinner table to kind and starts of hash telling you about which coins he's just started by. Shouts at you about I've, <laughs> the future. These are the tokens of the future. <laughs> but but you know, just watching that whole discourse has been great because people are talking about things that until very recently people didn't really think about. In your book, you're basically saying we shouldn't trust governments, but we can trust maths. We can trust numbers. Yeah, you know, every time we've checked in the last few thousand years, two plus two is equal to four. And so I have a, f I have a fair degree of, of trust in it staying that way for a while. Good old arithmetic. Yeah. And if we, if we're going to extrapolate from mathematics, then we can build a trust system, you know, where we can store information immutably and transact with each other in a way that, that instills a lot of confidence. Where there isn't a power structure that can be manipulated, that can mm. be corrupted. This is essentially the shared ledger of blockchain. Yes. Look, you know, some will say, but, but there were human minds that conceived of the blockchain and set those laws in motion. Fair enough. There were human minds that conceived of gravity, but they didn't sure. set those laws in motion. And we, we accept that that's a fairly real thing. Sure. But I mean, Bitcoin does have rules around monetary supply and, and, and the deflation of the currency, the block rewards for miners. Are you talking about the white paper that… Sure. So, so they're rules that are set up. You know, the encryption algorithms, that's mathematic and, and as far as we can tell, unbreakable and immutable, et cetera. But they're, they're rules. So one of the rules is there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, for example. Um, another rule is that the reward for miners will half every certain amount of blocks. And all of that is designed to make Bitcoin deflationary. But the beautiful thing about those rules is they can only change by consensus. There's no single source of authority that can go, we're changing the rules for Bitcoin. If you wanted to make a change to those rules, you'd have to submit those chains as a proposal to the network. And all of the miners and node operators around the world would have to go, mm, yeah, we like Gareth's change, and they would have to agree to do it. Um, and so it's something that can only be uh, changed by a distributed consensus, which is fascinating in itself. But beyond that, you're right. Human decision-making doesn't enter into 
the way that the network ticks over um, and governs supply, etc. And that also brings us into a discussion about what makes Bitcoin different from the other cryptocurrencies that are out there. Because I think one of the frustrating things about everybody talking about cryptocurrency uh, in this hype cycle is that they discuss it all in one breath as if it's all the same stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like food. Ah, food, it's all the same. <laughs> Carrots are very different from cheeseburgers. Um, and there are cryptocurrencies d- designed for just about anything you can imagine in the world of computing. And it would be perhaps interesting to get into some of those use cases. Um, but, but in my mind, Bitcoin is, is pretty much the only game in time, in, in town at the moment. And it's going to be a while before any of these projects, um, even get off the ground. Um, and so there's a lot of artificial value in the system already, but, you know, I think I, I also see this happening a lot s- slower than people think it will. You know, when, when I talk about Bitcoin becoming a, a, a currency with any form of significant adoption, I'm talking in terms of decades, not months or years. Hmm. So you don't get too excited. Be, be reasonable and well, practical I think about get, this. I'm very excited and I'm extremely yeah. optimistic. I just, I've don't seen this movie gun. before no. and, um, there's that, that, Bill Gates quote, which may or may not have been said by Bill Gates, uh, about how we always overestimate the change that will occur in two years and underestimate what will actually occur in 10. I mean, if you think back 10 years ago, give or take, that's when the iPhone first appeared. I don't think any of us imagined what smartphones would have done to society and culture by 2018. But at the time, everybody thought the world would change in some way within the next two years, which it didn't. (laughs) Change is gradual. But it's the story that wins, and that's that's the history of technology. The best technology never wins. Otherwise, Betamax would have beat VCR. Yeah, no, um, this is interesting because I've always thought that for anything to be successful, it needs two things. It needs timing and it needs critical mass, right? Absolutely. There's a guy by the name of – I think it's Paul Gross. He's a legendary investor in Silicon Valley, um, and he's got a TED Talk where he talks about the fact that they'd taken all of their investments, and he'd crunched the data on what makes a startup or a new idea successful. And obviously, they're, they're the things that are obvious, so the team um, is very important, etc. The most important factor, though, that, that he came up with is timing. And it's interesting if you, if you watch a company like Apple operate. I think they understand that fundamentally. Uh, the iPhone was rushed to market because the market was ready for a product and the technology wasn't ready yet. The Apple Watch, on the other hand, was ready for a good two years before they launched it because the market wasn't ready. That's um, interesting. And so technology companies that understand this well, like Apple, they're not watching what's technologically possible. They're watching what the market's calling for and how ready people are for this new idea and incorporating it into their lives. Well, they better have something new around the corner because people are getting a little bit bored, right? (laughs) I mean, isn't that you get, you get trapped in that world too. I mean, there isn't a a company in Silicon Valley that isn't trying to come up with the next big thing and release it at the right time. Absolutely. And I I suppose that this came home for me in 2015, I think it was, um, when I was working at a company called Bitex, which is now Luno. And, you know, we were working with Bitcoin and this, this, this elegant technology that threatened the nation state for all the right reasons, promised financial inclusion. You know, you can transfer massive amounts of value around the world in a few seconds for, you know, the cost of a few cents. And we were so enamored with this technology. It just seemed imminent. Like, why wouldn't everybody want to start using this tomorrow? And, of course, they didn't because people weren't ready yet. Too much uncertainty, too much doubt and fear, too much misinformation. But the story perhaps wasn't fitting in with theirs well enough. People just weren't ready for Bitcoin. Bitcoin was ready. So are they ready now? Are they going to be ready anytime soon? I think we're, we're slowly starting to get there. Um, 
I, the other thing that I, I realized at the time was that actually slow and steady wins the race. And you don't want things to become too prominent too quickly. Um, but for everybody, for everybody get all caught up in the, in the, in the price. Sure. But, but for a few reasons. So, so if you look at Facebook, for example, Facebook now has 1.2 billion users. Um, if those 1.2 billion people had showed up in the first year, you know, they would have buckled the infrastructure. Facebook probably would have gone out of business. <laughs> yeah. Um, you want to build a network slowly, gradually. You want to harden the technology. You want to see what works and what doesn't. We've had some throughput limitations in Bitcoin that are now being solved through second layer scaling, et cetera. You, and, and most importantly, you're in a regulatory environment where you're threatening the most powerful people on earth. Mm. And so the interesting thing about watching Bitcoin's adoption is that it's happened so slowly and subtly that you get the feeling that by the time it's big enough for them to sit up and try and do something about it, it'll be too big for them to combat. And so it's sort of slowly, gradually getting its tendrils into society and growing and getting stronger and more capable. And that's what you want. You don't want like to shoot the lights out. It sounds like a libertarian's dream. Kind of. So let's talk about how Bitcoin works. Um, to engage with the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, you need a wallet which stores your Bitcoin. Um, and that uses something called public key encryption, which basically means that you have a key, right, which is private and you don't share with anybody. That's your private key. You also have a public key, which is kind of like an email address for your money that you can share with people and anybody can send money to it. Um, and it'll arrive in your world. But to go and unlock that value and to send it on to, you know, somebody else, you, you need your private key to go and unlock it. Now, that private key can be stored in a number of ways. So one way to store it is using a custodial service. And some of the exchanges like Luno, for example, or Bitstamp or um, Coinbase, they offer it as a service. They go, look, Gareth, we'll look after your key for you, a little bit like a bank. Legally, that means that it belongs to them, though. Same mm -hmm. as when you deposit your money into the bank. Legally, it belongs to the bank. Um, but you could also store that key yourself, which intimidates a lot of people because we've all heard the story about the guy who lost the USB stick that had his Bitcoin key on it and now it's worth millions and he can't find it. Or the guy who hired a team to go through the dump to try and find his old hard drive that had some Bitcoin <laughs> keys on it. All right. So is there a danger that this whole thing is is built on something faulty because that's what, it, you know, there are always these naysayers and these, these people who are terrified of machine learning and people who think that ultimately there's some kind of inbuilt death star mm. weakness that's going to cause the whole thing to explode. So, uh, yes, that is a risk. And I think that's why, um, I speak in, in terms of Bitcoin again and not, and not other cryptocurrency projects. That's why we proceed so slowly and cautiously with any changes to the system. Um, so the encryption algorithm that Bitcoin started out uh, on SHA-256, that's a very hardened algorithm using very well understood um, cryptography and mathematics that had been tested for, for a very long time. Um, it had been employed theoretically in systems like Hashcash already. It's very well understood. And when you look at the Bitcoin core team of developers, and again, and these guys deserve more attention because they have their head down and they are the hardest working, smartest, nicest people you will meet in the world. But they aren't on Twitter running. You've their met mouth some of these people. They, yeah, right? yeah. You've, you've actually met them and spoken to them. Some of them, yes. Um, others virtually or whatever, um, you know, over the Internet. But but my point is that um, that these 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 guys have their eye on the prize. 
they're very dedicated to what they're doing and things happen very slowly in their world because they want to test it. They want to learn. They want to really kick the tires on any changes to the protocol. Whereas these other fly-by-night cryptocurrency projects, and I'm not painting them all with the same brush, but unfortunately I think I, I cover a majority um, of them when I say this – they play fast and loose with the technology. New encryption algorithms, cool. Just plug it in, make it look sexy, write a white paper that tells people we're better than Bitcoin, flashy new technology. And then you find out that there's some fundamental problem once they already have $8 billion worth of value locked up in their system, right? Then we see like a side tangle attack which happened in IOTA because mm. guess what? This technology is new and it hasn't been tested. And to your point, there's a fundamental problem. So again, they aren't all created equal, but, but Bitcoin is, is an example of how to do it properly. And I think if we keep that sort of those guiding principles and keep developing Bitcoin the way it is, we really are building one of the most magnificent pieces of technology I've certainly ever seen deployed. And since 2009, when the first Bitcoin transaction was made, um, to today, almost 10 years later, there hasn't been a single major vulnerability found in, in the code. The encryption algorithm has performed exactly as, as we would have hoped for. It's holding up bet, certainly better than any piece of banking infrastructure out there. So that in itself gives me a lot of confidence. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decrypto, brought to you by Luno the best platform to become educated on all things crypto. Luno makes it safe and easy to buy, store, and learn about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Just visit luno.com forward slash decrypto and sign up to redeem the exclusive promo code if you've listened to this series. This is cliffcentral.com.